The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Well, today is Father's Day, and so happy Father's Day to all the dads that are out there. And in honor of it being Father's Day, I thought I would tell you a little story today, a story of courage and bloodshed and betrayal, a story of torture and fighting, and most of all, a story of true love. Once upon a time, there was Rome, an empire that spanned from Spain and to England to Syria and Iraq down to Egypt and to Libya. Rome was actually a republic that transitioned into an empire under the leadership of Caesar Augustus, the very first emperor of Rome. And as he was emperor, there was born a baby boy in Jerusalem in Judea. And eventually the fame of this Jewish boy would eclipse the fame of the entire Roman Empire. And he would say that we are to love our neighbor, that we are to love our enemy, that we are to forgive everyone. Eventually he was betrayed, he was condemned, and he was crucified by the Roman Empire today the Roman Empire has disappeared. And yet this Jewish carpenter is worshipped throughout our world. And not long after his crucifixion, his followers, they would gather together on the first day of the week, and they would come together early in the morning to sing and to worship, to read from a fragment of a letter that they had received from one of his apostles as they met together, They would make commitments to be men and women who lived above reproach, to be honest, and to work hard. And these little pockets of believers where they were found under trees and in caves, in courtyards and in homes, you would find both masters and slaves, children and adults, men and women, Jews and Greeks, and even Romans. And these little pockets of people, they believed the most unbelievable things. They believed that God was spirit and not stone. They believed that every single person they would ever lay eyeballs on in the course of their life, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their age, regardless of their social status, that they all had the same inherent value. They believed that the days of animal sacrifice were over. And what they believed put them at odds with the rest of their culture. And so over time, they too were betrayed by friends. They too were persecuted by Rome. And yet somehow, their influence spread throughout the empire and throughout the world. And someday, one day, our generation will also be a a once-upon-a-time story. And I wonder what story will be told of our generation of church. Because we do not go to church, we are church. We are the followers of Jesus. We are the stewards of what it means to follow Jesus in this generation. And so today, as we continue our series together called Church Is, 
as we continue to study the book of Acts up through the very first section of this incredible narrative written to us by Luke. Today we're going to look at a very, very challenging section of this story found in Acts. And it's challenging, at least to me, it's challenging, especially as a man, I think it's challenging for all of us, which is why I wanted us to talk about this today. Because it reminds us that there was once a version of following Jesus that was actually awe-inspiring. There was once a version of following Jesus that even though it seemed strange and odd to the people who were looking in, it caused those people to lean in rather than lean away. There was once a version of following Jesus whose primary apologetic was actually rooted in outdoing one another in honoring each other. Take out your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 3. If you're using one of those Bibles in front of you, you can find this beginning on page 1,694. Now, the section of Scripture we're going to study together today is actually found a little bit later on um, in chapter 4 of Acts, midway through chapter 4. But the context for that story that we're going to, to, to look at today, it actually takes place beginning here in chapter 3. All the stories, all the events that we've looked at so far in this series that we've been in, all of them take place within just two months of Jesus' resurrection, right? Not two years, not 20 years, not 120 years, but just two months. And so all these details, they are very, very fresh in the minds of these eyewitnesses. And as we learned in the very first week of this series, there were at least 3,000 people who were living in the city of Jerusalem and who had seen and could testify to the miracles that Jesus did, just as we learned in that very first week. And that is why 3,000 people became followers of Jesus on the day the church is born, on the day of Pentecost. And it's Luke who tells us that in these first 50 days, from, the, from Jesus' resurrection all the way to the Jewish celebration of Pentecost, during these 50 days, there are Jesus sightings all throughout the city of Jerusalem. And so very, very quickly, Jesus' apostles become leaders of this brand new movement that was known as the Way, that eventually would become known as the church. And so one day... One day, Peter and John, they're going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg. Now, I've shown you this picture a couple times before. This is a picture of the temple court. Um, the temple court actually occupied an area of about 30 acres, right? So in context, our campus here is 20 acres. So this is a very, very large area. And it's surrounded by a very tall wall with a series of gates and entrances in it. And so Peter and John, they go through one of those staircases. They go up the stairs. They go on to the temple court itself. And as they are walking through the temple court, headed towards the temple itself, Peter and John come across this man who was born crippled. And Luke actually tells us a little bit later on in the book of Acts that this man was over 40 years old. And so that means that most of the people in the vicinity of the temple, perhaps even most of the people who lived in this part of Jerusalem, they had actually seen this man begging from time to time. And so verse 3, when he saw, when this crippled man saw, Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked them for money. But Peter and John don't have any money, so they can't give him any money. And so instead, in verse 6, Peter says, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. 
And so this man, he actually stands up and he begins to walk for the very first time in his life. And he follows Peter and John across the Temple Mount and he follows them as they walk into the temple. And surely, sure enough, all these people in the temple, they began to look at this man and they start asking questions of like, hey, is this the guy? And sure enough, it is. And so, of course, this draws a crowd, and of course, this gets people talking, and all of a sudden, Peter, he once again decides, this is now another perfect opportunity to preach. But this creates a problem, because now Peter is actually preaching inside the temple, and he is preaching inside the temple about Jesus. And so as more and more people come over to see this man who was once crippled and now able to walk, as they hear what it is that Peter is actually saying... The religious leaders and the religious rulers, they also come over to find out what's going on. And in chapter 4, verse 3, they seize Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail. And so now Peter and John have actually been arrested by the very same people who arrested Jesus only two months earlier. And more than likely, they are in the very same jail where Jesus was before Jesus was tried, beaten, executed, and crucified. And Peter and John realize that it is very, very likely that they will never, ever again see the light of day. But the very next day, these religious leaders, all the people who were at Jesus' crucifixion, They actually call Peter and John and this man who were crippled to come out. They bring them out of jail. They stand before these, uh, they stand them before this religious ruling council and they start asking them a series of questions. And they say to them, why can't you just let this Jesus thing uh, alone? Right? And right there, Peter once again decides to preach, and he once again decides to preach about Jesus. And Peter looks at all of them, and he says to all of them, Listen, you crucified him, but God, he raised him from the dead. And then Peter, staring into the eyes of these people that he knew would ultimately decide his fate, he looks at them and he makes a statement that they just found to be incredibly, incredibly offensive. And Peter says to them in verse 12, Salvation is found. In no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we are saved. And it's like, Peter, how how, how narrow? Right, Peter, how unfair? In in fact, if you're here today and you would not call yourself a follower of Jesus, right, this statement is probably part of the reason why you feel that way, isn't it? I mean, I, I get it. I understand that. In fact, maybe for some of you here today, you you are a follower of Jesus, and yet the truth is, you sometimes think to yourself, right, I mean, are are we sure about this? I mean, how can you really say he's the only way? I mean, how can you really say there is no other way but Jesus? But see, see, we, we are not the ones who made this up. Right? Peter, standing in front of this group of people who are going to decide whether or not he lives or dies, Peter is the one who looked at them and said, Listen, you crucified him, God raised him, and there is no other name under heaven by which we are saved. And see, listen, if this is where you struggle when it comes to following Jesus, right? If this is where your struggle is at, I get it. Right? But I would just tell you this. Try to listen to these words and hear these words through the eyes of Peter and John, right? Because they had seen their friend, they had seen their teacher, right? They had seen their rabbi Jesus. They saw him tortured. 
They saw him tried. They saw him executed. They saw him dead. They saw him buried. And then three days later, they had breakfast with him on a beach. And when you have breakfast with somebody who was dead a couple of days ago, when you sit down and you have breakfast with them, I I think you just believe anything that they say, right? And Jesus said to them, listen, I am the Savior. I am the one and only Savior of the Son of God. And so that's why Peter, right? That's why Peter, who, who just two months before saying these words, Peter, who was so intimidated by a middle school girl, right? He actually denied even knowing Jesus. And yet now, two months later, he can stand in front of the very same group of people who had Jesus tried, had him crucified, had him executed, and say, listen, you are guilty of murdering the Son of God, but don't worry, because God has raised him from the dead. And regardless of what it is that you're going to do to us or to me, there's just one thing you need to know. There is no other name under heaven by which we are saved. And so these men in verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men, these men had actually been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, that there was nothing that they could say. And so they actually send Peter and John and this man who, who used to be crippled, they send them out of the room and they actually start talking to each other and saying, okay, what can we do? I mean, what can we even do about this? These people, they all believe that God has done a miracle. They all believe that God has done this amazing miracle at the words of th- these men. And so they decide to to bring Peter and John back in, the crippled man back in, and they decide to let all of them go, but they threaten them and they tell them that they are never, ever, ever again, no matter what, they are never again to speak of the name of Jesus. And so just think about this with me for a moment. What do you think they did next? Did they go find themselves a couple of donkeys, hightail it out of town, saying, oh, we are so lucky we got out of there with our lives, right? We're, we're going to go hide out someplace so nobody ever finds us anymore? It's like, no. No, right, when you have breakfast with a man who was dead a couple of days ago, and you eat with him while you're sitting on the beach, right, you no longer, you lose all your fear, right, and you lose all your concern about this life. And so Peter and John, they actually go back to where Jesus' other disciples are waiting, where his other followers are waiting, where, again, picture this. They've been waiting and wondering and praying, trying to figure out whether or not they're going to go and attend you know, two more crucifixions or not. That's what they're thinking. So Peter and John, they go back, they meet with Jesus' other followers, and in Acts chapter 4, verse 24, what we discover is that they begin to pray together after this incredible, terrifying situation. And Acts chapter 4, verse 24 actually gives to us a record of what that prayer of those first followers of Jesus actually sounded like. And see, before we look at this together and before we study this scripture together, I just want to ask you a question for a moment, right? What would you pray if this, was, if this was your situation. I mean, picture this, right? You just got out of jail. 
You were just released from jail, and, and you were in jail. You had been jailed by the people that you know, arrested, tried, beat, crucified, and executed your master, Jesus. And now, they have threatened you, but you managed to get out, right? How, how would you pray in this situation? How would I pray in this situation? This is how those first century followers of Jesus, this is how they prayed. Verse 24, when they, right, that's the Jesus followers, that's Peter and John, after they heard what Peter and John had to say, when they heard this, all of them, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And here's how their prayer began. They said, Sovereign Lord. Right? They begin by declaring God's greatness. They say, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. Now, I don't know about you, okay, but for me, this is terribly convicting. Because do you know how my prayers oftentimes start out? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. They say, Sovereign Lord, right? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. I mean, how small? I mean, let's be honest. How small is that? You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. In other words, God, we actually recognize. God, we can see that even though things don't always go our way, even though there's things that happen to us that are scary, even though there are things that happen to us that we don't control. God, we recognize that just a couple of days ago, it looked like Emperor Tiberius was in control. We recognize, no, God, you are the one who is always in control. You are the sovereign God. You made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything that is in them. You spoke. You spoke, verse 25, by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, right, David, King David. And then they actually begin to quote one of the psalms that David wrote when David says this. He says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now, this is really amazing because this psalm was actually written, this, sec this psalm was actually written a thousand years. Think about that. A thousand years before Jesus was even born. And when David wrote the words of this psalm, he wasn't just simply talking about the events happening in his own day. He was actually looking forward to a day that he knew would come someday in the future that all the prophets knew that would someday come in the future when God would actually send his anointed one, when God would actually send his Messiah into this world. And these followers of Jesus, they recognize, they recognize that that day is today, the day that David spoke about, the day that Isaiah spoke about, the day that all the prophets looked forward to, they recognize that that day was actually happening. It was finally here, and their master, Jesus, was God's anointed one. In other words, God, the person that you were talking about, Right? That was Jesus. That was the one that you promised to send. He was the one that was your anointed one. 
Verse 28. They did, right? This is the Jewish ruling council. This is all the religious leaders. This is the crucifixion scene, right? They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. See, God, as we were living through this, this took us by surprise. But God, now that we understand what you've done, now that we've seen what's happening, God, we realize that none of this actually took you by surprise. And God, because none of this took you by surprise, we are not worried. And God, we are not afraid. But God, we do have a request. And so God, would you please hear our request? Verse 29. Now, Lord, protect us. Watch over us. Keep us safe. Cause our checking accounts to grow and our pant size to shrink. Let my team win. Let the other team fail miserably. Help me to pass the test I did not study for. Help me to remember everything I learned yesterday while I am binging on Netflix today. It's not in here, actually, right? You know, that's not what this says. But how embarrassing. Right, because if I'm honest, my prayer sounds like this all too much. My prayer sounds like this all too often. How small. How cowardly. How fearful. I mean, do you ever wonder, I mean, maybe I'm the only one, but do you ever wonder why sometimes you, you, you look out in the world and, and, and you wonder to yourself, you know, why don't I see God doing more things? And maybe I'm the only one who thinks this way or feels this way. I don't know. So if this, you know, maybe this is all just me. But maybe it's because I just pray small prayers. Maybe it's because th these are what my prayers sound like way too often, much more often than what I would like to admit. See, this is how those first century followers of Jesus, this is how they prayed. Now, Lord, right, consider their threats because they had been threatened. Consider their threats because there was going to be suffering. Consider their threats, because this was not going to be easy. But enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness, with fearlessness, with confidence. To which maybe if we're honest, we would say, you know, I think it was the confidence, I think it was the fearlessness, I think it was the boldness that actually got you locked up and thrown in jail in the first place. Maybe what we really need to do is just kind of tone this whole thing down a little bit. But see, the reason why this section of Scripture is just so convicting to me is because it reminds me that there was once a version of following Jesus that actually inspired heroic prayers and heroic praying. There was once a version of following Jesus where the followers of Jesus realized that what God was doing through them and in them, it wasn't just for them. It wasn't just for their families. 
It wasn't always safe. It didn't mean that they didn't have repercussions. It didn't mean that sometimes they had to give things up. But it was heroic. And they realized that what God was doing, it wasn't just for them, it was for the entire world. And so they prayed accordingly. And again, listen to what they say. Verse 30, stretch out your hand. Now don't miss this. Not for our benefit. Lord, stretch out your hand to heal, not to heal us. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, so that everyone will know that Jesus really is your one and only Son. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God boldly, fearlessly, with confidence, in spite of the threats, in spite of the intimidation, in spite of the fear that they had in their own hearts. And see, this is so important for us to understand, especially today and in our world today, because when the Scriptures tell us that these first century followers of Jesus, that they actually spoke the Word of God boldly, please understand, this did not look anything like this. This is not boldness. This is stupidity. Right? The scriptures are very clear that when those first century followers of Jesus, when they spoke the word of God boldly, that actually drew people to Jesus. This never draws people to Jesus. See, boldness is not weirdness. Boldness is not loudness. Boldness is not rudeness. Boldness is about influence. Boldness is about creating opportunities. Boldness is about taking advantage of the opportunities that God himself actually presents us with. Boldness is actually saying something when it would be easier to say nothing. And again, just think about this for a moment. Right? Aren't you glad that somebody was actually bold with you? I mean, aren't you glad that somebody was actually looking for opportunities with you? Right? Aren't you glad that there was actually a group of men and women someplace that you didn't even know who actually gave up some of their time, gave up some of their resources, gave up some of their energy to help create an opportunity for you? Men, this is Dave and Eric's heartbeat. This is their passion. They want to work with you to create opportunities to use the influence that you have in another man's life so that they can hear a bold message, a message that their Savior Jesus lives, that he has forgiven their sin, that there is no other name under heaven by which men and women and children are saved. And Luke tells us, he reminds us, that many, 
Many who heard this message, they believed, and the number of men, just men, it grew to 5,000. And see, listen, understand this. Their boldness, right? If you, don't, if you don't believe me, listen to what Luke says. Their boldness, it didn't revolve around heaven or hell. Yeah, their boldness didn't revolve around issues of doctrine. Okay, their boldness didn't even revolve around sin, believe it or not. Their boldness was all tied to one singular event that is at the center of everything that we believe as followers of Jesus. Luke tells us in verse 33, he says this, With great power, the apostles, they continued to testify to the what of Jesus. Right? To his teachings, no. To his parables, no. To his stories, no. To the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. These first century followers, their confidence, it was not linked to some sudden change in in their status in the world. Their confidence was not linked to, to a change in the government or the culture around them. Their confidence was rooted in, it was grounded in, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because here's the amazing thing. Listen, when Jesus, because they believed that Jesus rose from the dead, they were fearless. And their fearlessness led to selflessness. And when you no longer fear loss, you become more selfless. When you no longer fear loss, you become more compassionate. When you no longer fear loss, you actually become more generous. And it was the generosity, it was the selflessness, it was the compassion that, hear me, made a very pagan, very selfish, very fearful culture lean in. See, do you understand why it is that every single one of us, but especially us men, do you understand why it is that we can actually live in confidence and in boldness in our faith in Jesus today, right? It's not because the threats get eliminated. It's not because we don't ever have to give anything up. It's not because we are not called to sacrifice from time to time. The reason we can have confidence, the reason that we can have confidence and be grounded, have our confidence be grounded, the reason we can actually live each day without fear in spite of what is happening around us is because God, he raised Jesus from the dead. And because he lives, you and I can actually face tomorrow. Because he lives, we, you and I, knew we no longer need to live with fear. Because he lives, we can actually be confident and who our God is, and what it is that he is doing. Because he lives, we can actually be compassionate. We can be generous. We can be selfless. We can actually care for the needs of other people. Because he lives, we can live lives that cause the people around us to want to lean in and understand more. And so let me just ask you, What do you think the story about our generation of church will sound like? What's the story that someday, one day, long after we're all gone, what's the story that's going to be told about this generation of church? Is it going to sound like this? As people took sides... As culture got nastier and nastier, as the world continued to distrust, as fear grew, 
as people increasingly looked to their government for salvation, as compassion waned, and as hope disappeared. There were some who seemingly and surprisingly had no fear. They were informed, but they were not worried. They were responsible, and yet they were also compassionate. They were very involved. They were very engaged, but they were in no way divisive. They were men and women of conviction. They were men and women of principle, but they were in no way judgmental. They were the followers of Jesus. And the amazing thing is, the worse things seemed to get around them, the better that they got. And the incredible thing was, some of them were actually Republicans. Some of them were were Democrats. Some of them were even independents. But you know, that is not the thing that stuck out, because above all of those things, they were followers of Jesus. What will be said? about our generation of church. Because we do not go to church. We are church. We are the stewards of what it means to follow Jesus in this generation. And we, you and I, we set the tone for the next generation. The generation that comes after us. And it's Luke who wants to make sure that we understand that we don't ever miss what it is that was actually at work then and what it is that's at work now. And God's what was so powerfly at work in them all? Was it it God's fear? Maybe it was God's anger. Maybe it was his judgment. Was it his wrath? No. No. Luke tells us it was God's grace. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, it is so amazing that your church is continuing to move and to work in spite of us, in spite of the threats, in spite of the fear, in spite of all those things that can be so easy and so distracting. And so, Father, I pray for all of us that are here today. First of all, Father, I thank you for the men and women who have gone before us, whose shoulders we now stand on. And Father, I ask that as you have given to us this incredible stewardship, this incredible opportunity to be your church in this generation, Father, I thank you for all the men and women who have suffered to make sure that we would have a copy of the scriptures that we could actually read and understand for ourselves. Father, I thank you for the men and women today who suffer in this world today because they claim the name of your Son, Jesus. 
This world is not worthy of them. And Heavenly Father, I pray, especially for us as men today, that our story would be worth telling. That our story, our version of following Jesus, would be a story that's worth living for and a story worth dying for. And Father, I pray and ask that in every single one of us, the world around us would see something that is so different. Father, that your Holy Spirit causes them to lean in. And Father, I pray for all of us that we would remember that the one who we follow, the one whose name we are known by, is the one who rode into Jerusalem and embraced death on our behalf and then conquered it for us and for this world. Hear us, Father, as we personally and silently confess our sin to you. The good news of the gospel is that there is no other name under heaven by which we are saved. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth because Jesus alone has conquered sin. He has defeated death and he has given to each of you the gift of forgiveness in his name and through his blood. And so you are truly forgiven in Jesus' name. Amen. Would the ushers and lay ministers please come forward? It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Take and eat all of you, this is my body. After supper, he took the cup of wine, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Take and drink all of you, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's been shed for you for the forgiveness of your sin. Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me.